Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhalt. In this podcast, we talk about international reputation and foreign policy and a few other issues along the way. And today we're going to talk about one of the countries that I think has paid particular attention to its international image, and that is India, uh, associated with the tagline Incredible India, which dates all the way back to the early 2000s. Simon, India, where does India rate right now in the Nation Brands Index? Uh, The Nation Brands Index is currently in 34th place, so round about halfway down the index. Is it stable there? Well, relatively relatively unstable, actually, in the sense that, as you know, and as we've reminded people on numerous occasions, the normal picture for the Nation Brands Index is significant stability from year to year. Mm -hmm. Um, So we don't see India diving around um, from from year to year, but there is movement there. And the movement has generally been downwards. When we measured India in 2008, for example, it, it tended to rank, well, it ranked 27th overall. Mm-hmm. That, that overall ranking always has to be taken with a bit of a pinch of salt because obviously it's a global average. We're, we're interviewing people in 20, 25, sometimes as many as 38 different countries. And we're also asking them an enormous number of questions about each country. So that overall ranking really has to be treated with some caution. Because what does it mean? Does it mean the strength of your image? Does it mean the positivity of your image? It means a bit of both. But it does tell us something, as long as we don't imagine that it tells us everything. So whatever that overall ranking is telling us, the general profile of India in the eyes of a large proportion of people around the world, mm-hmm. uh, it's drop, It's been dropping since 2008. It hung around 27th, 26th, 27th, 28th, until about 2012. And then in 2013, it dropped to 31st, which is quite a drop. That's a long way to go. And we might perhaps speculate why that would have happened. And then it hung around 30th, 31st until 2016, And then in 2017, it dropped to 32nd. 2018, it dropped to 35th, stayed there in 2019, and this year it's 34th. So something is not going well with India's international image. That's very interesting, because it also kind of maps on to the the loss of interest in the BRICS Mm. as a category of international analysis. Maybe there was a point where Brazil, India, Russia, China were all being spoken about in one breath as the wave of the future. And as a kind of a reality check comes in and the BRICS sort of separate out in terms of their prospects, we have a different sort of discussion about those those countries. What's your working theory about the driver of that adjustment? I'm not sure that I have a theory. Um, That would require a lot of analysis, which I haven't done. But it is quite interesting um, if you look at the rankings by demographic, particularly by age group. And that's when you start to explode those overall rankings and look into them a bit more deeply. Um, And and this is quite interesting. So if you you compare, for example, the way that different age groups view India versus the United States, you can see something quite interesting going on there. The younger 
respondents in the Nation Brands Index, the 18 to 29 cohort, currently rank India 41st out of 50 countries, so really very low, and the US 7th, which, as we've discussed before, is rather low at the moment, but mainly because people are, are still thinking about Trump. The 45 plus age group rank India quite a bit higher, 32nd, which is closer to its global average, and the US 13th, much lower than younger people. So uh, you see a sort of opposite movement going on there. The, the younger people rank um, India um, significantly lower compared to the 45-year-old group. Do the younger people look towards China instead? Are they more naturally inclined towards China as a kind of wave of the future type thing? Somewhat. Again, there's a very interesting contrast there between the age groups. The um, 18 to 29 cohort prefer China to India. The 45 plus cohort prefer India to China. But but how does this compare to the uh, indications of, of India in the good country index, where, of course, you're looking at actual things, actual contributions to things on the world stage? Yeah, it's interesting that the India's performance, performance in the good country index is uh, generally improving. I mean, it's improving quite markedly. In the first edition, this is 2014, India ranked 81st. Remember, that's a much longer list of countries in the good country index. It's 150, 160. It's been climbing steadily, more or less steadily ever since. Uh, in the second edition, it was 70th. In the third edition, 69th. The fourth edition, 44th. Dropped a bit in the most recent one to 53rd. But generally speaking, it's a picture of India contributing more to the world outside its own borders uh, with each year that passes. China, somewhat more stable. It ranked really rather low in the first edition, 107th, picked up in the second edition, 69th. And it's been more or less around the 60s and 70s uh, ever since. Given the current health crisis in India, health is one of India's stronger contributions, isn't it? What's the driver of that? Very important fact to bear in mind, and that is that the Nation Brands Index is in real time. It's an opinion poll, and so we get people's perceptions as they come in. The Good Country Index, because it's a composite index and uses big data sets, data sets from the United Nations and other international organizations, it's all, there's always a three to four year lag in the data. So the current edition, that's one of the reasons I don't call it Good Country Index 2020, because it's not 2020 data. Um, we're currently using 2017 or 2018 data. That's unavoidable with the composite index, and most of the big country rankings work that way. So we're not looking at India now in the latest edition. We're looking at India three years ago. But I do think, uh, nonetheless, that fact about the different age groups having different preferences between China and India is worth pondering because, you know, one, one simple hypothesis is that if younger people prefer a country, then that's an indication that uh, its status, its profile may be about to improve. That is assuming that those young people maintain their affection for that country um, as they grow. And that's the thing we don't know. But the, but the flip side of, of that is that if India has got a problem with the youngest generation, it, it needs to reach out more to that demographic. Well, I wouldn't say reach out. I would say it needs to do things that will make uh, younger people feel glad that India it's a curious and a rather and a rather mixed picture here. But generally speaking, 
Going back to what you were saying a moment ago about the BRICS, the term BRICS specifically was not known by very many people. You know, people who read the Financial Times or The Economist um, who have degrees in some um, social science or something of the sort, it was a very big phenomenon. But for the majority of the world's population, it passed unnoticed. I don't think that people around the world were saying, gosh, I wish I lived in a brick. I don't think they knew what a brick was. I think you're right in the sense that there was a sort of a halo effect around the technical notion of the particular economic growth of those countries. And there was a period, it's true, where people were expecting great things from, uh, from, from that cluster of countries. And as you say, and I think this is quite right what you say, that as that uh, package uh, begins to dissolve, people inevitably start looking at the countries more as individual countries and less as a group. That's certainly a good thing. It's certainly more realistic because then they're obliged to look at what those countries are actually doing. But, you know, India is a country which is tremendously interested in its own image, as you said uh, right at the beginning. They spent millions and millions on the Incredible India campaign. And uh, as a tourism campaign, I think it was very successful indeed. I think it attracted a lot of tourists. I don't know what it did for the overall uh, image of the country. The Nation Brands Index suggests not much, if anything. But then we know that. We know that the, the communications campaigns don't have that effect on the overall image of the country, even though they may boost an individual sector such as tourism. But but what what's the message to the Indians today? They are, as a people, so anxious, so keen to be respected and admired on the world stage, to be recognized for what they are. This supercharged mega democracy that's becoming so technologically advanced, so capable, so competent, so proud of itself. And yet, and yet, this doesn't seem to be reflected in the world's view. So what can we what can we tell them? What are they doing wrong? You know, my sense is that India's image is ahead, dramatically ahead of other places in the region. And that I think India would be quite insulted to be compared to the image of Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Pakistan. They wouldn't want those as, as comparative countries. And yet, you know, they're obviously in a completely different league to their immediate neighbours. And something we've talked about before is this idea of cuckoo brands. And you know, one example of cuckoo branding is how in Britain, people from Pakistan would always open an Indian restaurant. They wouldn't call it a Pakistani restaurant or a Kashmiri restaurant. It's uh, India is the regional brand that people gravitate towards and feel comfortable with. We, we don't want to disappear down the wormhole of history, but I think that the I think that the the, uh, the British Empire, in the way that it presented the different parts of its empire to the rest of the world, has an impact which still lasts today. The way that Britain. Uh, presented India, you know, many of our listeners may be familiar with the phrase, the jewel in the crown, the idea that India was the most valuable, the most prized overseas possession of the British Empire. And Britain had the loudest voice in the world for a, a century or more, and always spoke very, very positively about India and visibly gave the choice jobs to the Indians. And, um, and I think that that has had an effect on the rest of the world, echoes of which may even still be around today. And the way that Britain promoted India, I don't say that it made up for the damage it did to India, but there is a reputational effect there that Britain taught the world 
to like and admire. Uh, Looking at the history of human rights, I'm really struck by the way in which India pioneered a global discussion of human rights. Even in the run-up to Indian independence, the Indians were asserting human rights in the world. So I think that that there is a a heritage of an Indian contribution to global affairs, quite apart from the British Empire, that started it on a very strong route with great significance to other people around the world. And to begin with, it was clear that, for example, Indian opposition to apartheid to begin with, was about mistreatment of Indians in South Africa. But pretty soon that developed into into mistreatment of everybody affected by the apartheid laws. And each year, India would introduce this uh, UN condemnation of apartheid and ask the General Assembly to uh, condemn this terrible system in South Africa. And, And by 1960, in part because of decolonization, it was possible for the the world started lining up behind this Indian campaign. You could also look at the contribution of Gandhi to campaigns of nonviolence and the the meaning that Gandhi has to uh, people around the world is is tremendous. And so, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure that there is this uh, heritage of an, an Indian contribution to the best kind of world affairs that they can count on. But, but, Here we get into a problem of vulnerability. And if India is seen as the country of human rights and, you know, the country of nonviolence, we then get to the problem of religious extremism within India and the country's best self being in in jeopardy. The same as when we were talking about the Volkswagen scandal uh, affecting the image of Germany. Human rights scandals in India surely have jeopardized the linkage of of India to principles of human rights. I think that's absolutely right. You may remember I did some research a couple of years ago, which was attempting to characterize and identify a group I call the natural cosmopolitans. Right, right. These are, these are a, a subset of the world's population who have an instinctive tendency to see themselves as citizens of the world first and citizens of their own nation second, and consequently are the best people to talk to if you're looking at getting action on climate change or anything else global. Interestingly, the, the natural cosmopolitans are not uh, predominantly rich people who watch TED Talks in North America. It isn't, as many people would expect, something that correlates with education or income or anything of the sort. It appears to be a character type, really, and some people just have it and some people don't. If you set the bar very, very high, it's no less than 10% of the world's population who are absolutely committed globalists, if you like. Not that they believe in economic globalization, but they see themselves, they feel themselves as citizens of the world. That's 750 million people, which uh, if it were a nation would be the third largest nation in the world after India and China. So this is quite an interesting, quite powerful group. And one of the things that uh, I did with my colleague, Robert Govers, was uh, we used the World Values Survey to try and estimate what the natural population of natural cosmopolitans is in each country, just to see how they're distributed internationally. And one of the things that we discovered is that India has one of the lowest proportions of natural cosmopolitans of any country on earth, which does chime with the sense one gets of Indians being extremely patriotic to the degree of it being benign, if not occasionally malign nationalism, occasionally, I repeat. 
on the whole, very, very proud, very tending towards being inward looking. The, the country that has the highest proportion of natural cosmopolitans in its population is Andorra. It's a very interesting ranking. I should probably publish it one of these days because you get countries like Trinidad and Tobago, which have one of the highest proportions of natural cosmopolitans of any country on earth. Burkina Faso, likewise, a lot of uh, naturally cosmopolitan people there. And Sweden, of course, uh, it's the majority of the population. But anyway, so I don't know what that tells us, but there's, there's, a, there's a sort of conflict there between the inward lookingness and the outward lookingness, the desire to, I'm talking about India again, the desire to be admired, esteemed, held in high esteem by people around the world. And yet it comes from a place of fierce national pride, which to some degree prevents that happening. It's, it's a very interesting um, comparison with, with Russia. You mentioned earlier on the comparison between India and other countries within the South Asian region. And of course, you're absolutely right. In that case, the regional comparison is virtually meaningless because uh, India is a gigantic state and, and a large economy. And most of the other um, countries in the South Asian region are, are really very different. And the real comparisons, I think, should be made on the basis of uh, international profile and international position. And there you find India sitting together more naturally with countries like Mexico. India and Mexico have a great deal in common in image terms. They're nearly always right next to each other in the Nation Brands Index. Their profiles are not all that different. As I've said, very interesting comparison with China, although they are quite far apart, but also Russia. Russia ranks much higher in the Nation Brands Index than either India or China. Why would that be? Well, I suppose more recent history, um, associations with Europe, uh, much other stuff as well. But those are the comparisons that are worth looking at, and particularly in this sense of injured national pride. I think there's a lot in common there between India and Russia. This this frustration that the world just doesn't seem to get it. They don't understand how important we are to the international community. They don't understand how important we are to history and to culture, and they can get lost. It's just very good. My sense is always that India has a lot going for it. And you know I, what I notice going around the world, just talking to people is that people smile when they talk about India. And when they talk about China, they don't smile. And there are so many things that people, positive things that people can latch on to about India, uh, particularly individuals and Indian corporations that people have good experiences of that don't yet exist with the international profile of China. To me, that's really positive. And, you know, the, the Indian entertainment, which is so, it, you know, it's one of those countries that has done a tremendous amount with popular culture. And it's also, you know, the role of yoga, which I think is tremendously important. Maybe it needs to be a little bit more located to India or reclaimed by India, because the way people talk about it in California, you'd think it was in indigenous to California. Um, like pizza. But, yes, that's right. There's a lot in India's story to, to share and talk about, and a lot of gifts there that we receive, that we enjoy, maybe without necessarily understanding where they where they originate and what the real presence of India in our lives is. Yes, I agree with you 100%. Of course, the classic warning at this point is to India, in case India is listening, the remedy for that is not, we need to do more to tell people about it. 
because that has tends to have precisely the opposite effect. When countries start saying words to the effect of, why don't you understand that our contribution to the world is really important? The reason you're happy today is because of what we do, then that has the opposite effect. It makes it makes people feel rather resentful about it. But I think um, I think you're certainly on to something there when you talk about the role of people, and particularly in the way that you contrasted uh, India's reputation with China's reputation. Although uh, China does significantly outrank India overall in the Nation Brands Index, the area where India is much stronger than China is in the people category. Right. India, in the latest example, ranks 40th for people. Uh, China ranks way down at 48th. And that has got an awful lot to do with what you mentioned, with popular culture, with Bollywood, and all the rest of it. But it's also got a lot to do with anthropology. And uh, in the end, we've got China, a fundamentally collectivist society, where individuals tend not to emerge very strongly, where individualism is not in, has not traditionally been encouraged. India, a highly individualistic nation, where it just comes very naturally for brainy Indians or ambitious Indians mm-hmm. or imaginative or creative or energetic Indians to rise above the mass to become famous, to achieve remarkable things, not just in India, but on the world stage. And that's one of the reasons why I think people like India and like Indian people, because they can probably name half a dozen prominent Indians, admirable, amusing, likable, what have you. For China, you can't, because there aren't any individuals that people can name. And therefore, people, as we were saying the other day, default to the diaspora. And what does the Chinese diaspora tell you? They sell goods at prices lower than we can, and therefore they put us out of business. Or they work at lower rates than our people can work, and therefore they put us out of a job. And that's about the most you can generally say, a sort of stupid generalization about the role of the Chinese diaspora within another society. Whereas the Indians tend to contribute noticeably. They're the chief executive of a corporation. They're a We've got a foundation, a foundation of a tremendous contribution of India. We've got interest in India, uh, inherent warmth towards India. But it also seems to me right now that we're at a kind of crossroads. And sometimes the more you know about India, the more mm. concerned you become. Mm. And uh, I wonder, you know, I'm, I'm particularly interested, uh, as you know, in reputational security. And I wonder how can what can India do practically to ensure that its reputation, the good reputation that it has, is secure and they don't slip. I wonder which of the of the issues emerging within India do you think pose the most risk to its standing in world admiration, such as it is? I think India has to go through the same exercise of grand strategy that every country on earth needs to do at some point, which is to just uh, set up a flip chart and write the 40 things that keep everybody awake at night all around the world and then ask themselves which one of those do we know something about and which one of those or ones of those because India is a big country with a lot of resources where could we move the needle not necessarily on our own but in partnership with other countries could we move the needle on pandemics in the future could we move the needle on climate change could we move the needle on migration what do we know about financial instability What do we know about human rights, which you mentioned before? And and grand strategy in the 21st century consists of picking one or two grand challenges and saying, let's make that ours. 
and let's see what we can do for ourselves and for everybody else on that topic in the coming decades and thus earn ourselves the reputational security that you mentioned, the, the, that feeling that the world couldn't do without India. I think that when it comes down to it, that's the question. Could the world manage without India? And I think the majority of people around... Not right now. Look, look who's making the vaccines, you know. Absolutely. It's a funny picture because uh, despite the fact that it's the largest bulk manufacturer of vaccines in the world, it's also the country that's faring least well, or one of the countries that's faring least well in terms of the way that it's handling the uh, the pandemic within its own borders. People look at that and it presents a contradictory picture. And when people are presented with a contradictory picture, they go away thinking nothing. <laughs> they don't carry the contradiction in their heads. Also, it's going to need to take seriously some of the internal challenges that every country faces, but that seem to loom particularly large in India. Problems of community extremism, gender violence, media freedom. There are some terrible issues facing journalists in, in, in India that, that the rest of the world hasn't really noticed yet. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about it. And, and then I suppose the elephant in the room here is that uh, chunk of the world's population that inhabits a higher economic standing than India just has this deeply, deeply, deeply rooted prejudice against poorer countries. And it is enormously difficult for somebody in a country uh, in Western Europe or North America to feel deep, profound, genuine, sincere respect for a country that's at a significantly lower level of economic development. The rich countries look down on poor countries. It's as simple as that. And, you know, when we talk about poorer countries having a good image, it's a relatively good image, despite the fact that they're so poor, but they're always going to be 10, 20, 30 places lower in the nation brands index, because in the end, rich people don't respect poor people, and rich countries don't respect poor countries. And there's going to have to be a fundamental, a seismic change in human nature before the significantly poorer country can be admired as much as significantly richer countries. I mean, there are plenty of rich countries in the world that that do far less for the world than India, really genuinely far less, but because they're wealthy, they're more admired. But making the way forward is to make a real contribution. I'm sure the underlying indicators are good in so, in so much as people respond emotionally well. And at the bottom line of this, it's about emotions. It's about people developing feeling uh, for a place because of things that it's actually doing. And I would back India above many, 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 many other places as being the place that will that will go the distance. And, and, and here it's interesting to go back to those, those comparisons. So the likability factor, I would say in the case of Mexico, is probably equal, unless you happen to live in the southern United States where you have a slightly different view of what Mexicans are. But around the world, because of these tropes about South Americans, Latin Americans, and particularly Mexicans as being colourful, imaginative, lively, creative, jolly, Latin, and all the rest of it, that's some, somewhat of a parallel. People, I think, find Mexicans as likable as Indians, more or less. I haven't got the rankings here in front of me, but probably quite similar. China, we've spoken about, but what about Russia? One of the things that's happened since, the since uh, well, I was going to say since the fall of communism, but actually since the rise of communism, is that the likability of the Russians has basically been deleted from the memory of humanity. In the days of the, of the Tsars, the Russians were considered to be, well, perhaps not cuddly, but admirable, sophisticated, uh, cultured. Since the turn of the 20th century, 
that's gone. And that's Russia's big challenge. The sense of this being a likable people has been taken away. That is unfair and unjust, as indeed it is unfair and unjust of every country on earth. Because one of the things I've discovered, as as you have as well, traveling around the world, everywhere I go, people are absolutely delightful. That is a rule to which there are no exceptions. And it's a sort of running joke in my family that whenever I come back from a trip, people say, how was it? And I say, oh, the people were lovely. And and I say, wherever I go, because people just are lovely wherever you go. Not everybody, but the majority of people. And people noticed this when, the, when they had the, um, the Football World Cup in, in Russia, and people did go. And what did everybody say when they came back to Europe or to North America? They said, oh, the Russians were really nice. Duh, people are really nice. Well, I think Russia really deserves an episode in its own in its own right, uh, and that pretty much brings us to the end of our uh, discussion this afternoon. I'm still Nick Cull. I'm still Simon Anhold. And this has been People, Places, Power. Thanks so much for listening.